I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 7, but we're going to take a little stop in chapter 2 first. Over the last couple of months, uh, Pastor Michael has been preaching through the book of Romans, and he's had a lot to say about the law lately. And so I wanted to segue this morning into 2 Corinthians by talking about the law. And not, not the Mosaic law, not that one, and uh, not the law of Christ, um, and not even the general idea of God's law. I want to talk about a law that's not in the Bible, but it's obeyed by so many, especially in America today. It's the 11th commandment. Have you heard of this? You know what it is? Thou shall be nice. You are not permitted to offend me at any time for any reason or any circumstance. That's the law of the modern age. Don't offend me. Don't say anything that would upset me or make me sad or hurt my feelings. This is why the church, by and large, does not practice church discipline. Because to go and tell a member you're in sin hurts. And if you, if you tell people that, then they're going to think you're mean. And then they're going to turn away from Jesus. No, no, no. You can't offend them. You have to love them just where they are. Don't confront their sin. Don't talk to them about their sin. Just be nice to them. And then somehow, mysteriously, they'll realize they're in sin and they'll want to turn from it. Just don't offend them. It's the 11th commandment. And it's a commandment I think Paul ignored. I don't think he had any worry about trying to avoid violating this command. It's not that Paul was trying to be mean. He just realized it's impossible to show Christ-like love for other people. It's impossible for him as a pastor to be faithful and then try at the same time to never offend somebody. Because we are commanded as a church, we are commanded as believers to confront sin. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go to him in private and show him his sin. That's a command to every believer, to every person in the church. And I just want to show you that Paul really wasn't concerned about offending people by confronting sin. Just a little survey here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about sexual immorality in the church. What do you say? Kick that guy out. Get rid of him. Why are you letting him stay in the church? 1 Corinthians 11, he rebuked the Corinthians because they were abusing the Lord's table. And in between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there are two events that we really need to understand when we get to our passage this morning. Because there are two things that Paul did during that time that play a big role in our passage. The first thing he did was he wrote another letter, a letter that was not preserved for us. It's described in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1. This is often called the sorrowful letter. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1, but I determined this for my own sake. I'm sorry, this is a visit. Let me back up. Between 1 and 2 Corinthians, there is a letter and a visit. The first thing he did was he visited Corinth, and he called the visit sorrowful. 2 Corinthians 2, 1. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. This can't be the when he planted the church at Corinth, because that wouldn't be sorrowful. This is another visit. After he wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul gets notice that there's problems in Corinth beyond what he said in 1 Corinthians. Namely, that the sexual sin continues, and now there are false teachers who are claiming to be apostles that have come into the church, and they are pulling people away from Paul. And they're slandering Paul and telling these people, you can't listen to him, he's not a real apostle, you don't listen to what he says, you listen to us. And they're deceiving people in the church. And Paul said, well, I can't just write him another letter, I need to go there and deal with this. And he gets there, and if you read through 2 Corinthians, it seems that one of these people attacked Paul personally while he was there. But Paul goes and he confronts not only the false teaching, but he confronts the rampant sexual sin that's going on in the church. And he describes the confrontation as sorrowful. It was an experience Paul and the Corinthians did not want to have repeated. After Paul leaves that visit, he then gets noticed that the sin continues. 
They haven't repented. They haven't dealt with it. The church is allowing these false teachers to stay in the church and to continue to spread their lies. They're allowing the sexual sin to continue. They're not doing what they should be doing. And so Paul now writes them a letter. It's called the severe letter. If you say in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 4, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have abundantly for you. Paul thought confronting people over sin was an act of love. I'm willing to offend you because I love you. This letter was a sharp rebuke. It was intended to break through the hardness of their hearts so that they would see their sins, so that they would repent and they would turn back to the Lord. But notice at the end of that verse, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful. It wasn't like some people today where they go around and they just try to offend everybody. That's not his goal. His goal wasn't to make them sorrowful. Sorrow here refers to pain of mind or spirit. In several places, it's translated as to be grieving, to have grief, like the grief of a loved, a loved one passing. In Hebrews 12, it says that the discipline of God at times can be sorrowful. It can cause you pain. It can hurt. His goal in writing this severe letter was not to hurt or offend them, but that they would be sorrowful unto repentance. He didn't want to hurt them, but that is what the letter did. The letter caused them severe sorrow. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to get to our passage here. Paul writes them this letter. And he knows it caused them pain. Titus comes back to him, 2 Corinthians 7, chapter uh, 7, verse 8. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, that's the severe letter that we don't have, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow. He said, At first, when I wrote the letter and I sent it to you in the hands of Titus, I kind of regretted how hard I was on you. But I don't regret it. Ultimately, I don't regret making you sorrowful. Paul recognized that sorrow, intense pain in the mind, is the logical consequence of sin's presence. When there's sin, you will feel sorrow. And the only way he can help them, the only way he can show love to them, is if he confronts their sin so that they do feel that pain. If you're in sin, and I want to be faithful to Christ... If I want to be loving to you, I'm going to confront you about your sin, even if it hurts your feelings. If you want to be loving to other people in the church, if you want to be faithful to Christ, then you must confront sin in other people. Yes, it's going to cause them pain. Yes, it's going to hurt their feelings. And in the modern American church, that's bad. Don't do that. You need to ignore that. Despite what modern Americans think, not all sorrow is bad. We shouldn't try to preserve ourselves from every form of sorrow. The question is not, do you suffer sorrow? Do you have difficulties or emotional pain as a result of sin? The question is, do you have the right type of sorrow? That's the question. Does your sorrow lead to repentance? In 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, I want you to see two types of sorrow that result from the confrontation over sin. You're going to be in one of these two camps. When you are confronted with sin, you're either going to have a worldly sorrow or you're going to have a godly sorrow. One sorrow you should celebrate. That's actually the title of this morning's sermon, a sorrow to celebrate. When you see it in yourself, it should cause you to rejoice and to be glad. The other, the worldly sorrow, when you see it in yourself or in others, you should mourn. Because these two types of sorrow have two very different outcomes. The question this morning is, how do you respond when you are confronted with sin? Whether that's the Holy Spirit confronting you as you read through Scripture, or that's another person coming to you and exposing your sin, what response do you give? It's the same question Paul had after he sent his severe letter to the Corinthians. He hands his letter to Titus, and then he sits back and says, what are they going to do? How are they going to respond? Let's read the passage. For the sake of context, I want to start in verse 9. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. I now rejoice, 
that you were made sorrowful. No, excuse me. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have godly sorrow, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world brings death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced about in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrate yourselves to be innocent in the matter. This morning, as we look at these two types of sorrow, I want to begin with the worldly sorrow. Look at verse 10. He says, For godly sorrow produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world brings about death. I want to start at the end of that verse. Worldly sorrow. What is worldly sorrow? Well, sorrow here, as we said before, describes intense regret or sadness, and it always accompanies sin. One lexicon said it's a state of unhappiness marked by regret as a result of what has been done. Doesn't that describe you after you sin? A state of unhappiness marked by regret. And Paul says this sorrow, this worldly sorrow, is of the world. Now you can, this word for world can refer to the earth, it can refer to the universe. It's the word cosmos, where we get cosmos. Here, the word refers to the world of sinful humanity. It refers to all those that are opposed, that are hostile toward God. 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul sums up this idea of the world. Listen to how he describes the world here. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not at all mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the greedy and the swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. His point there is, if you're in the world... The only way for you to avoid sinful people is for you to get out of the world, for you to go to heaven. That's the only way to get rid of them and get, avoid them. The world is characterized by sin. It's characterized by sinful people. But even the world, even sinners who do not know Christ, experience sorrow for sin. It's the sorrow of the world it's the sorrow that the world can accept over sin. It's the sorrow that the world approves of, it likes, it appreciates it, it celebrates it. It's a sorrow that allows you to stay in your sin while soothing your conscience. So what does the sorrow look like? Paul doesn't describe the sorrow here, but I think we can go into the Bible and look at unrepentant people and see what it looks like. What does this worldly sorrow look like? So you can see if it's in your life. Turn over to Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to give you two biblical examples. The first one is Cain out of Genesis 4. And you know the story, so I'm not going to go through the whole story with you again. Cain murders his brother Abel. He does that because he's upset that his brother's sacrifice was accepted. And Yahweh comes to Cain in verse 9. And Yahweh confronts Cain about his sin. Look at verse 9, Genesis 4, verse 9. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he, Cain, said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's a pretty outlandish answer, isn't it? You don't know where your brother is? You just murdered him with your own hands, and you're going to tell God you don't know? God confronts him about his brother's whereabouts, and his best answer is, I don't, I don't know. There's no indication that he's sad. There's no indication that he's grieving by his sin. He's standing in front of God. God is speaking to him directly, and there's no hint of remorse at all about his sin. The reality is worldly sorrow has no recognition of the grievous offense that sin is to God. It doesn't grieve for that reason. It doesn't care that sin offends God. If God hadn't come to Cain and confronted him about his sin, Cain probably would have gone the rest of his life without thinking about it. It never would have bothered him. He's only upset when he's confronted by it. Can you go into sin and stay in sin and it never bothers you until you're confronted? You have worldly sorrow. Also notice, 
Where is your brother? I don't know. He's not even willing to admit his sin. And it's not like he, he thinks he can hide it from God. He's not even willing to confess it or acknowledge it on any level. Ungodly sorrow, worldly sorrow, is marked by a refusal to confess. A refusal to even acknowledge the sin. Worldly sorrow will make excuses. Well, they made me angry. Worldly sorrow will find justifications for sin of why I couldn't do anything differently. But it'll never honestly tell you, I sinned against you and I offended a holy God. The sinner doesn't take responsibility here when they refuse to confess. Cain refuses to confess and he seems almost apathetic, like he just doesn't care that he murdered his own brother. That is until God tells him what his punishment's going to be. Now Cain becomes sorrowful. Look at verse 11. And now cursed are you from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Now I read that and I think, you know, God's actually being really merciful here. Cain killed somebody. He killed his own family member. Under the Mosaic law, if you murdered somebody, what happened to you? You died. Two to three witnesses, you're done. Cain here murders someone and he gets to keep his life. That's mercy. But notice how Cain responds. Does he respond with thanks and wow, that's so merciful? Verse 13, and Cain said to Yahweh, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will be that whoever finds me will kill me. He's not actually sorry until he learns his consequences. There is a worldly sorrow that grieves because I got caught. There is a worldly sorrow that grieves over consequences, but it doesn't grieve over actual sin. He has no remorse over his brother. He has no remorse over offending God. He doesn't care about anything but how this punishment is going to affect him. Worldly sorrow at its core is self-centered. It's all about me. It doesn't matter how my sin affected you. It doesn't matter how my sin affected God. Worldly sorrow focuses on me my consequences, what I want, what I need, what I think, my comfort. The victim of my sin is forgotten. Both the human and divine, they are both forgotten. Worldly sorrow is self-centered. One more example. This is likely the best and well-known example of a worldly sorrow. Judas Iscariot. Turn over to Matthew 27. And again, you know the context of Judas. I don't need to explain the whole story. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. Jesus is taken to the high priest, Caiaphas. He stands trial. Caiaphas says, well, you know, I can't do anything yet. So he sends him off to Pilate. And Judas shows back up at the high priest with the 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and return the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Notice, Judas felt remorse. The word refers to having deep regrets, wishing it could be undone. It refers to deep emotional regret. He likely shed some tears here. He likely wept and cried. Worldly sorrow does have emotions attached to it. Someone who's suffering with worldly sorrow they're not really repentant, but they do cry. They do weep. They are suffering. They're not crying because they're repentant. They're crying because they're suffering with guilt, embarrassment, shame, a loss of reputation, or some other consequence. They're not weeping about their sin. Judas may have had a lot of tears, but those tears are not a sign of repentance. 
And this is proven by what he does. What did these emotions lead Judas to do? Look at Matthew 27, verse 4. Say, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they say, what is that to us? This is being the high priest. See that, see, wow, see to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed. And he went away and he hanged himself. Does that sound like repentance? His worldly sorrow only led him to more sin. It only led him to offend God even more. Worldly sorrow brings in more sin. And this is where you will see people in worldly sorrow and they will use sin to try to medicate their pain. They'll use drugs and alcohol to try to medicate themselves so they can feel better. They'll use sexual sin like pornography so they can get rid of this feeling of guilt and shame. They won't repent and turn to Christ, but they'll just try to medicate the feeling. Worldly sorrow leads to more sin. There is one last characteristic for worldly sorrow. It's back in 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7, turn back there to verse 10. Final characteristic of worldly sorrow. It's at the end of verse 10. And this really fits with Judas. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, But the sorrow of the world brings death. This is the defining characteristic of worldly sorrow. And it's the only characteristic that Paul emphasizes here in this text. Worldly sorrow brings about, it accomplishes death. Certainly talking about physical death in the case of Judas, but more emphasis here on eternal death, facing eternal judgment. Why? Because this sorrow is a sorrow that does not bring about repentance. It doesn't bring about a true change in life. There's weeping and mourning and crying and all this complaining about sin and the consequences of sin, but the life never changes. You can spend your entire life weeping, sobbing, and crying over sin and still go to hell. This is not a sorrow to celebrate. When you see someone who is suffering and struggling with sin, and they're weeping a lot, and they're crying, and they're telling you how much, how miserable they are, but you don't see any fruit of actual repentance, please don't celebrate that mourning and crying. Be faithful to Christ and tell them the truth. Tears are not repentance. You need a godly sorrow. You need to mourn the way God tells you to, to mourn. Confront them with Scripture. Show them what true sorrow looks like. What does true sorrow look like? What is the sorrow that you should celebrate? This is our second point. The second type of sorrow. A godly sorrow. This is a sorrow to celebrate, and it's in one verse. Verse 11. I'm going to read the verse again just for context here. For behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has brought about in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Paul looks at the sorrow of the Corinthians. And this verse describes their behavior. This verse describes what repentance looks like in the life of a believer. It should describe our life when we fall into sin, when we are confronted by sin. Notice Paul calls this a godly sorrow. Back in verse 9, this is why Paul said he could rejoice. Verse 9, I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance, for you were made to have a godly sorrow so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Paul says, I now rejoice that you are suffering, that you have this sorrow. This word here, rejoice, the idea here is to celebrate. To celebrate. It's used in Revelation 19 to describe the church celebrating with Christ in heaven. Paul is celebrating that they are mourning, that they are sorrowful. Doesn't sound like the modern church, does it? 
Why is he celebrating? Beginning of verse 10. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. When your life is marked by what's in verse 11, that leads to repentance and that brings about salvation. This is a godly sorrow. Literally, a sorrow according to God. You, some other translations translate it, a sorrow according to God's will or a sorrow according to God's way. The NLT, the New Living Translation, says it's the kind of sorrow God wants. This is what God wants from every believer when you fall into sin and are confronted by your sin. This is not a self-centered sorrow like the worldly sorrow. This is a God-centered sorrow. How does my sin affect God? What does God say about my sin? It recognizes that sin is an offense against an infinite and a holy God. And not only that, it too has fruit. Worldly sorrow brought death, eternal death. Verse 10, godly sorrow produces repentance. Repentance talks about a thorough and complete change of mind. Your mind has been completely changed about your sin. And that complete and thorough change of mind leads to a change in conduct and a change in behavior. How does that work? When a liar repents, he doesn't just stop telling lies. He starts telling the truth. When the lazy man stops being lazy, he starts working with his hands. When the person who abuses you with their mouth repents, they stop abusing you with their mouth and they put on compassion, humility, and forgiveness. And if you want to know where I got those examples from, Ephesians 4. Those are the examples Paul gives for repentance. Godly sorrow is what produces, it accomplishes repentance. And this repentance is without regret. It's a repentance that doesn't require you to have any regret. Worldly sorrow is filled with regret. You know why? Because in worldly sorrow, the person still wants the sin. If this, probably a bad example, if this was sin, worldly sorrow says, I really like this, but I'm going to get in trouble if I keep this. So I'm going to put it down. I'm going to pretend like I don't want it anymore. But in reality, my desires haven't changed, my opinion about my sin hasn't changed, and I just regret the fact that I can't go back to my sin. Godly sorrow has no regret. It's marked by contentment, peace, and eternal satisfaction because the heart and the mind change. The person no longer wants the sin. They recognize it as an offense against a holy God, and they hate it. So what does Paul say this godly sorrow looks like? How do I know if my sorrow is worldly or godly? Well, Paul here in 2 Corinthians 7 gives us a list of seven characteristics of godly sorrow. The first one, right at the beginning of verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has brought about in you. The first characteristic of godly sorrow, I've titled this eagerness. Eagerness. This comes from that word in the LSB that the LSB translates as earnestness. Term refers to making haste, to be quick about something, acting quickly. When it's used in a moral or ethical context, it describes a seriousness or a dedication. Here in 2 Corinthians 7, the term describes an eagerness to right the wrongs, to make it right to set things back in order, to repair the damage that your sin has caused. There's no such thing as passive repentance. You ask people, well, what'd you do about your sin? Well, I repented. Well, how did you repent? Well, I prayed about it. That's passive. This is an eagerness. I'm not going to sit back. I'm going to get up and I'm going to do something about my sin. I'm going to make this right. True godly sorrow compels you to act and to act quickly. Eagerness, if you're eager 
Let's say this morning you're struggling with a particular sin. Eagerness means you don't wait until you get caught before you do something about your sin. If you're saying, well, I have this sin, but I'm repentant, and you're just sitting back waiting, you're not repentant. You don't have a godly sorrow. You don't tell yourself, well, I'll figure it out at some point. I'll figure it out later. No, eagerness means I don't want to wait. I want to get rid of this now. I want to resolve this today. Eagerness means if I can't figure it out, I'm going to go get some help. I'm going to go in and I'm going to ask someone to help me with this sin. I don't care what it costs. You could say this describes a sanctified impatience. I'm impatient about fixing this. I need to get this fixed today. The first characteristic of a godly sorrow is an eagerness, an eagerness to fix it, to get it right. Second characteristic. Second characteristic of a godly sorrow. Clearing your name. Look at verse 11 again. He says, what vindication of yourselves. Vindication here, the Greek word is apologia, or apologia, if you want to say it that way. It's the word from which we get our idea of apologetics, to make a defense. In apologetics, we defend the faith. Here, it's making a defense to clear our name from being attached to that sin. It's this willingness to do whatever it takes to prove I have nothing to do with my sin anymore. I will take every step possible to make sure everyone knows that sin and I have divorced once and for all. I am done with that. It's putting up walls and barriers that block my path back to sin. It's seeking out accountability so that I can't have little dark corners of my life where I can hide my sin. It's seeking to demonstrate to others that I am now trustworthy again. If I violated the trust of my spouse, my parents, my friend, my employer, I'm going to do whatever I can to restore that trust. This isn't merely self-centered reputation repair. I just want to have my good name back. There's a higher goal here. We learn in Romans 6 that when you come to Christ, you are what? You are united with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, he talks to people who are engaged in sexual sin, and he said, you have joined Christ to a prostitute. You have connected the name of Christ with your sin. When I go to clear, the clearing of your name also refers to clearing Christ from that sin. As a follower, as a disciple of Christ, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want my Lord and Savior to be attached to this sin in any way. And for me to continue on would, to bring, would bring shame and reproach upon the name of Christ. When you sin, do you want to quickly clear the name of Christ? Do you want everyone who knows about your sin to know that as a disciple of Christ, you have nothing to do with that sin anymore? Are you eager to clear his name from sin? That's a godly sorrow. Third characteristic of a godly sorrow. Anger over sin. Anger over sin. Look at verse 11 again. What, indi what, indi wow. what vindication of yourselves? What indignation? Indignation. This is a noun. It refers to intense anger towards what you judge and perceive to be wrong. And here it would refer to a right judgment. You actually perceive something that is actually wrong. And you are angry about it. In fact, this same word is used as a verb. And it was used of the ten apostles. Remember when uh, the sons of Zebedee went to have their mom go to Jesus and say, Would you let my two sons sit on your right and left? And the ten other apostles, it says, were indignant towards the brothers. They were angry about it. Here, it's an intense and holy anger towards my own sin. You might say this is a hatred of sin. No, this is not being surprised. You'll hear people say that. I can't believe I did that. 
I can't believe I did that. They're surprised and dismayed that they would ever do something so horrible. You need to understand that's self-righteousness. That's not recognizing just how sinful and wicked your heart really is. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked. And whenever you say, well, I can't believe I did that sin, it's only because you don't understand just how sinful you are. This is not surprise and dismay because that leads to passivity. I don't know how I pulled that off. Couldn't be my fault that I did that. Righteous, over, righteous anger over sin motivates repentance. And in fact, when Paul in Ephesians 4 is talking about repentance, you know what he tells them? Be angry and yet do not sin. Be angry about sin. Righteous anger always produces righteous behavior. If you have righteous anger about your sin, you won't use your anger to justify more sin. You won't tolerate anything in your life that even resembles that sin, that is in any way connected back to that sin. Your time, your days of toying around with sin, you know, getting as close as you can to it without crossing over, those days are over. I hate this sin. I want nothing to do with it. And I want nothing to do with anything that's dealing with that sin. Can you honestly say that this morning? The sin in your life you hate, you have a righteous anger towards it. Can you honestly say to God this morning, I hate every sin that's in my life? Or are you still keeping some of those sins around like they're a pet? And holding on to them because you enjoy some part of it. And you like some part of it. You need to have a godly sorrow. A sorrow that hates your sin. Fourth characteristic of a godly sorrow. Title this, a reverence for God. Reverence for God. Look at verse 11 again. He says, what indignation, what fear. The term here is phobos. Phobos is the term from which we get our word phobia. It refers to a fear. Interestingly enough, in secular Greek, this term was used to describe the panic you experience when fleeing from an overpowering enemy. When an army retreated in fear, they had phobos. That's the kind of fear he's describing here. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, this term was used to describe being so fearful that you trembled, that you shook with fear. And some, and I think there's some truth to this, say that this is referring to a fear of going back to your sin. One of the best ways to find out if someone really understands just how dangerous sin is, is you ask them a simple question. How much do you trust yourself to stay away from this sin? Let me ask you that question. How much do you trust yourself that you're going to stay away from your sins? And if you say, oh, absolutely, you don't have a godly fear yet. You need to fear sin. You need to fear temptation. Run from it. I think that's certainly true here, but I don't think that's what really Paul is getting at here. Again, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same term phobos was used to describe a fear of God. Isaiah 8 verse 13 says of Yahweh, And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your cause of trembling. This is not a fear of punishment. That's not what it's talking about here. It's not, well, I'm going to do right because I don't want to go to hell. That's not what he's talking about here. This is a deep respect and awe for God. This same word, phobos, is used to describe the respect children are to give to their parents. In Ephesians 6.5, the same idea of phobos is used to refer to the respect and reverence you should have for government authorities. In 1 Peter 2.18, Here in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul connects the fear of God with striving for holiness. Go back up to verse 1, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness. How? In the fear of God. It's because I have a deep reverence and adoration and awe for God. I have a deep love for God. That's what motivates 
true repentance is a love for God and a love for Christ. The thought of offending God, the thought of offending Christ terrifies you. It causes you to avoid sin. Not so you can avoid the consequence, but so that you don't offend your king. Some of you need to quit trying to avoid consequences. You need to quit trying to avoid going to hell. You need to grow in your love and your fear and your respect for who God is, for who Christ is. Grow in your admiration of God. Godly sorrow comes with a fear of God. Fifth characteristic of godly sorrow is a desire to restore relationships. A desire to restore relationships. There's no place for a godly sorrow, a truly repentant person who has damaged relationships through sin, who says, well, I don't care about those relationships. Look at verse 11. What fear, what longing, there it is, what longing. The word here is used to describe a strong desire for communion and fellowship with someone else. Paul told the Romans in Romans 15, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, it was a strong desire he wanted to have fellowship with the Romans, to be with them. Even here, Paul says of the Corinthians, the Corinthians are showing a godly sorrow. They're showing true repentance. Why? Because the person they sinned against, Paul, they have a longing for him. Look back at the end of verse 7. Speaking of Titus, as he reported to, to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. The Corinthians who had sinned against Paul, in the midst of their godly sorrow, longed to have their fellowship with him restored. The man that many of them had sinned against, that it, it came to them and visit and was harsh on them, the man that wrote the severe letter and rebuked them strongly, they turned around and said, I love that man. I want to be near him again. True godly sorrow is not content to have broken relationships as a result of my own sin. True godly sorrow will want to do anything that it can to fix and to repair the damage that I've done. you'll long for that fellowship again. Are you okay with broken relationships because of your sin? If you are, you don't have a godly sorrow. You're not repentant. And this is where the idea of restoration comes into play. If your sin damaged the trust between you and your spouse, you realize your relationship can't be restored until you fix that. And so you'll do anything you can to fix that trust. If your sin damaged someone's property, you will repair or replace that property. If your sin cost them money, you'll be like Zacchaeus out of Luke 19. Remember what he said? The half of my possessions I will give. To anyone I have defrauded, I will repay up to four times what I took. I'll do anything to make this right with you. I want to fix this relationship. Godly sorrow always seeks to repair the damage done as a result of sin. Sixth characteristic of a godly sorrow, holy devotion. Holy devotion. This is in that little phrase, what zeal, there in verse 11. The term here is zealous, zealous, from which we get our English word zealous or zealot. This describes an intense positive interest in someone or something. An intense positive interest. In verse 7, the Corinthians had a zeal for Paul. That is, they had a strong interest and a desire and a renewed dedication to the apostle. Here the, here the Christian experiencing godly sorrow has zeal. They have an intense interest and desire. Now, some take this to be synonymous with eagerness that we looked at at the beginning of the verse. Eagerness has more of the idea of the speed and the, the quickness with which you do something. Here, the intensity isn't demonstrated in haste and doing it quickly. It's demonstrated in action. Your strong desire is demonstrated by what you do, 
Jesus was zealous for the house of God. And what did he do? Zeal for your house has eaten me up. He cleansed the temple. And in fact, Paul says the zealousness of the Corinthians was contagious. It stirred up Macedonia and Achaia. That's in 2 Corinthians 9 too. Paul's focus here when he talks about zeal is their zeal, their strong desire for holiness and righteousness. It's a strong desire for fellowship and communion with God himself. Like eagerness, this characteristic should mark and describe all the others that you do. There is an intensity about repentance. There's a strong dedication about it and an ardor. I'm going to accomplish it. I'm going to do this. And you're not going to stop me. Seventh one. Last one. Seventh characteristic of a godly sorrow. You accept consequences. You accept consequences. Look at the end of verse 11. He says, what avenging of wrong. This is a single Greek word. And the idea of this word is just meeting out justice. Giving justice. It's used in Luke 18.7 where he says, Now will God not bring about justice for his elect? It also carries the idea of inflicting penalty on someone for wrongdoing. Bringing consequences. In 1 Peter 2, verse 14, he says, Or to governors as sent by him, here it is, for the punishment of evildoers. Same word. True godly sorrow over sin results in a desire to see justice done. It desires to see that those who have sinned face consequences for their behavior and for their offense against God. In Corinth, for the Corinthians, this would look like them putting the false teachers out of the church and rebuking them and calling them out as false teachers. This would look like doing church discipline on those who are engaging in unrepentant sexual sin. In our personal walk, it means that when we sin, we accept whatever consequence there is for that sin. Forgiveness does not always mean that there is no consequence. Just because you've been forgiven doesn't mean there's not some other consequence. If you steal $100,000 from your employer, your employer might forgive you. You're still probably going to prison. There is a consequence, and godly sorrow will accept that consequence. It will not complain about it. It will not make excuses. It will not try to avoid it. Paul finishes his description of this godly sorrow in verse 11 with a summary statement. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. In everything. In all that you have done. You have done all of these things with the goal of proving and demonstrating to the world that you and Christ have nothing to do with the sin. That you hate the sin. And you don't want to have anything to do with it again. How do you respond when you are confronted with sin? Is your life marked by a worldly sorrow? A sorrow that makes excuses? That never confesses? That seeks to avoid consequences? Is your life marked by just wallowing in despair and wallowing in your, your emotions, but never doing anything about your sin? Are you content to leave your sin right where it is, and you won't come and ask for help, you won't do anything about it? You have a worldly sorrow. And you need to understand something, that if that doesn't change, it will produce one result, your eternal death. So what can you do if that's you? How can you gain this godly sorrow? Well, first of all, you have to understand godly sorrow comes from God. It's given by God. Here's a couple of things you can do. First, confess the fact that you have a, God, a worldly sorrow. That you have not truly been repentant over your sin. 
confess that sin to the Lord. And here's an idea, confess it to somebody else. Get some accountability in your life. Get some help. And then go into Scripture and find everywhere where Scriptures talk about your sin and see what God says about your sin and pray over it until it crushes you. And if you say, well, you know, that Pastor, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Well, there's an alternative. Do nothing. It's not a good alternative. I'm not recommending it. But that is the alternative. You can do nothing about it. And one of two things will happen. One, you'll continue on in your sin. Your heart will be hardened. You'll prove that you never were a believer and you will die and you will go to hell. Or two, you'll prove that you are a believer because God will discipline you and his hand of judgment and discipline will come upon you and he will crush you in discipline. If you need some help, if you're struggling with sin, even if you think I have a worldly sorrow, please come and get some help. We have biblical counselors here to help you. Please don't stay in your sin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's not always easy looking at our own lives, looking at our own heart. And if we're honest, we have all at some point in our life had worldly sorrow. We just ask that you would help us to see our sin, to see it for what it really is, that it's an offense against a holy and perfect God that we would turn from it, that we would repent of it, that we would have this godly sorrow, this zeal for holiness and righteousness, that we would want to vindicate ourselves and to vindicate the Lord Jesus Christ from that sin. And we ask that you would do that in the life of every person here this morning, that this church would be known as a church that is humbled, that is loving, but that this church is a holy church. That when we say that Jesus is our Savior from sin, we mean it. We really have been liberated from sin in our own lives. That we live holy lives. And we ask that you would help us this morning and help us this week as we do that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.